my name is Matt Sidley. Uh, Jim is normally like the senior, he is the senior pastor. Normally he's the one up here speaking. So, you know, for those of you, if this is your first time here, you're visiting with us, I apologize because you will have to come back at least one more time to be here like the senior pastor preaching next week because he's going to be launching into a new sermon series and, and today you get to sit here and listen to me. So I apologize and yes. No, it should be good. We're, actually, today we're going to look at a passage. Um, the youth, middle school and high school, we've been rolling through the book of Matthew. Uh, and so when Jim was just like, you know, could you preach to the adults this week? It's just like, all right, well, we're going to do something from Matthew because this is what I've been in as of late. And rather than like using something that I already teach, like taught the youth in their class, I was just like, we're going to jump ahead a little bit. So the adults, we're going to get a little bit of preview of what's to come. And then I'll just reuse this sermon in like next month for the youth when we get to this portion. Um, so you, the youth that are here will get double dose. Um, so yeah, today we're going to look at, <laughs> I was telling Evan, it's, this is a sermon, there's a lot of Matthew, because my name's Matthew, we're going to be looking in the gospel of Matthew, and we're going to be looking at the calling of Matthew. So it's a Matthew-heavy sermon today. Um, so we're going to go ahead and dive right in. You guys ready for this? All right, here we go. We're going to read together the passage. I'm going to put it up on the screen. So if you're willing and able, you want to stand with me as we read the passage together. So it's Matthew chapter 9, and we're starting in verse 9. It says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is God's word. You may have a seat. So if you'd been kind of reading through Matthew, like building up to this, like Jesus had just kind of finished his Sermon on the Mount, his famous, you know, sermon as recorded in three chapters there in Matthew. And, and now he's been, he's, been, he's been moving all over Galilee, you know, performing a bunch of just miracles, healing people left and right. And... Like, the popularity and everything around Jesus is really just starting to grow. Could you imagine it nowadays? Like, if someone came around and was rolling through Olympia and was healing, like, every kind of sickness and disease and illness, like, could you imagine just the social media reaction? Like, people, you'd be flocking to that. You'd be like, is this true? Is this really happening? Is this bogus? Is this phony? Like, you know, people are swarming. People are swarming. People are coming to see what's going on. So here we come to a story of Matthew. So it says, as Jesus passed on from there, as he's moving on, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Sitting at the tax booth. This right here gives us a lot of insight into who this Matthew person is because he's a tax collector sitting at the tax booth. Now, even like nowadays, like how many people are fond of tax, taxes? 
tax collectors, right? There's part of me that's like, you know what? There's part of me that enjoys paying taxes because it's like it's paying for services like fire department and police and the military. Like, you know, there's some services that are provided from paying taxes. But do I like it when I see how much is taken out of my paycheck going to those things? No, I don't like it. You know, if you meet someone that works for the IRS, they're not going to tell you they work for the IRS because then you just don't like them. Like, you work for the IRS. You work for the department of our government that takes all of our money. And then, of course, you have to ask them, like, they take money out of your paycheck, right? They better. Good. You know, it's like it just, you know, the ta- even, even today, like, tax collector, taxing doesn't make people happy, <laughs> right? Taxing. Oof. So, but even more so in the day in what's being written about here. Because in the day, the tax collectors did not work. It was not their government's tax collectors. It was the Roman Empire's taxes. So here, Israel, right? God's chosen people are being ruled and oppressed by the Roman Empire. God's nation is being ruled by somebody else. And you as a tax collector are collecting taxes to give to this government that's ruling over us. So tax collectors were not very popular people. You've like sided with the enemy. So if you became a tax collector, like if that was your profession, or like this is what I really want to do, you, you're done. Like your social circle is gone. You do not now, you know, people like you walk next to you on the street and they get to the other side of the street. They don't want to be near you. Now, and also tax collectors, they became notorious. They're known for they were charged more taxes, right? Because now like our days, you know, you do your taxes on TurboTax. There's set, you know, there's pay scales and all that stuff. Like, you can go look it out. You know it. It's not necessarily a huge mystery, even though sometimes it feels like a mystery. Um, but, you know, they could charge pretty much whatever they wanted because they had so much they had to give to the Roman government, but they could just take more. And where does that money go? In their pocket. So tax collectors are not popular people. One of the commentaries that I was reading about tax collectors, just to kind of capture the view of how the, the Israelites viewed the tax collector, compared it to how essentially the Jews felt towards Nazi sympathizers during World War II. When they come in and take over a country and there are people that would kind of support the Nazi party, that's how they felt towards those people. That's just how they felt towards tax collectors. Like how in the world could you be a tax collector? How in the world could you do this? That's how popular tax collectors were. So Matthew was a tax collector. He's sitting there. Jesus comes by, and Jesus says to him, this is not a question. He says, follow me. Follow me. Now, when I hear that, it's one of those things where it, it seems a little odd for someone to come up and say, follow you, because his response is that he, he gets up and he follows him. Like, if I came up to you and I said, hey, follow me, you'd be like, well, for how long? Like, what are we talking about here? Like, you do you need to follow me over here because we need to have a little private conversation? Are we playing follow the leader where now you're going to follow me around for a little while and then it's going to be your turn? Like, what type of following is this here? Like, I'm not quite understanding this. And the implications, when Jesus says, follow me, to Matthew, it just, it reminds me, this is not a perfect analogy, but I like Star Wars, of when Darth Vader is reaching out to Luke and says, join me, and together we can rule the galaxy as father and son. Right? And as Luke is processing through this, this request is not like a, uh, oh, come join me, we're going to rule the galaxy for like a day. This is just like, you join with me. 
This is for the long haul. So when Jesus says, follow me, he's saying, I want you to join with me. I want you to accompany me. I want you to be at my side. I want you to be my disciple. One of the things I thought was kind of unique just as I was teaching the youth is that Jesus calls his disciples. Back in the day, like if you wanted to be a disciple of like a Jewish rabbi, you had to pursue that. You had to seek that. You had to request that. Jesus is one of those people that had done things the opposite way. He calls his disciples. Just a little interesting tidbit. So we move on. So he calls him, and Jesus, Matthew's response is that he rose, he got up, he was sitting at his tax booth, and he followed him. And he followed him to a pretty familiar place. It says, and as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. At first you're kind of like, wait, where did they just go? What just happened? You know, this sentence seems a little weird in its structure. But, you know, Mark and Luke also have accounts of this story, of Matthew's calling. And Luke sheds a little light that they went to Matthew's house. So Jesus essentially said, follow me, and led him to his house. And now, you know, it's one of those things Jesus seems to invite himself over to people's homes. He did this to Zacchaeus, another tax collector, Right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, the guy in the tree. He was a tax collector. He said, come down because I'm coming to your house. He just did the same thing to Matthew. It's like, follow me. Now we're going to your house. We're going to your house. We're going to your house. And they ate together. They reclined at the table in his house. And this got me thinking of, like, who do you eat with? Do we just sit down and eat meals with anybody? You know, like when you go to Wendy's, like do you look and be like, that person's sitting by themselves. Let's go sit at their table <laughs> and sit with them. You know, Costco's one of those weird places, you know, with the tables all together and you're fighting for a spot. And that's like the only place people are comfortable sitting next to people they don't know because it's like, I got a table and that's a seat, so I'm sitting at it, right? But normally we don't eat with people we don't know. Most times we eat by ourselves. Like we eat breakfast by ourselves while the children are still asleep. And she's like, yes. Or we, eat, or we eat with our coworkers, you know? We socialize and we eat with our coworkers. I was looking at, I was kind of doing a little research on this as far as people eating together, and I found a Gallup poll that was talking about the number of days essentially people in America eat in their homes together with their own families. And the study was done, it was, it was, it was the information was from 2003, it was published in 2004, was essentially 28% of families ate one meal, pretty much a dinner together, seven days a week. And this number was drastically down from, like, the previous numbers. This was in 2004. And, you know, they cited all these things like after-school activities and soccer and things that your kids start going at. It makes it more and more difficult. And just the number of meals that we eat as a family normally with even our own family are declining. But we don't normally just invite people off the street that we don't know to come in and eat at our house. We normally don't invite people we don't like. Normally be like, oh, I want to throw a party. I'm going to invite my friends over. I'm going to invite my friends to come have a meal with me. And it's a very intimate thing to invite someone into your home, is it not? Right? Like I was thinking about this. It was kind of convicting where it's like, when was the last time that we invited someone into our home to have a meal with us? Because I've got two kids, little kids, and another one on the way. Sometimes you feel like you're in survival mode. And you're just trying to survive. And sometimes it's the last thing to think about, like, inviting people into my home and, like, having relationship with them. It's one of the things I really love about life groups 
Um, like we're in the Fiskness Life Group. We meet on Sundays. We have we eat together every week. You know, we we bring food and we eat together and we enjoy that fellowship of eating together because eating together is an intimate thing. But who do we do that with? We do it with friends. We do it with friends. So it says, "Behold." So they're reclining at the table. But many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and the disciples. Who are the people that Matthew associated with? Nobody liked him. No one wanted to associate with him except for other tax collectors and sinners. Sinners is a quite, you know, like we think of it as like this is such a broad term. There could have been unbelievably questionable people there where you'd be like, what? These people, like, why? Like, he's reclining with sinners. What, what is he doing? This is, this is scandalous. And that is exactly what the Pharisees are thinking. And so they ask his disciples. He said, when the Pharisees saw this, in verse 11, they saw this. They said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why? They saw this. They didn't hear about this. They didn't receive a report from it. They saw it. What the scene looked like at Matthew's house, I don't know. I don't know the layout of his house, right? But Jesus has been healing people. People are flocking to him. They're coming to him. I don't know if the Pharisees are like in the windows, like looking in and being like, look, he's eating with sinners. Or if they're just waiting outside and like, you were in there long enough to eat. Why, why, are you, why is he in there associating and eating with tax collectors and sinners? Why? So they're flocking and they've heard it. They're like, why is he doing that? That's a dangerous question. Why? Right? Why? Why does he do this? Why, 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 why? Why would he do this? So Jesus overhears. And he says, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. Even in today's society, I don't go visit the doctor unless I have to. And even then, sometimes I don't want to. Right? Those that are in need of the doctor are the ones that go to him. Those that are in need of healing are the ones that need a healer. It's those that are in need of rescuing that need a rescuer. It's those that are in need of provisions that need a provider. It's those that are in need of saving that need a Savior. It's those that are in need of this, those that are in need of healing. It seems so simple. And in verse 13, he says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Both Mark and Luke's gospel don't include kind of that first half of the verse. They just have the second half. So we're going to kind of look at the second half first. He says, for I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. The doctors come for the sick. The healers come for those that need healing. I haven't come to call righteous people. I've come to call sinners. Paul talks about this a little bit in Romans chapter 3. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, I'm going to put it up here on the screen for you too. He says in verse 10, as he's quoting some psalms, he's kind of combined some of them together. He says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. 
all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And this is a theme that you can find throughout the Old Testament books, that there is none that is righteous. There is none that can stand before God right on accordance of the law. There's not one. There is none that's righteous. Not one. So Jesus says that I haven't come to call the righteous. I've come to call sinners. There's two pools here of people. There's the righteous pool and the sinner's pool. There's nobody swimming in the righteous pool. I haven't come to call the righteous because there's no one there. Jesus is the only one that is righteous. Paul later talks in, in, in Romans there that we have a righteousness that can be accredited to us because of what Jesus has done. But we're all in the sinner's pool. I've come to call the sinners. I've come to call everybody, not the righteous. I'm not wasting my time over there with the righteous. I'm going to the sinner's pool. No one is righteous. Not one. And then the, the first part of that verse, when, the first time I read it, like as you go through it, Jesus has like, I don't know if you've read, sat through and read through like, you know, a gospel in its entirety, you know. It's long. You know, normally it's like after a couple chapters, I'm winded. Like, I'm like, I'm done. I need a break. But, you know, just like sit down and read one in its entirety. And it's kind of like this, this attitude that Jesus has as he goes through the gospel. But here it's like, at first, at my first read, it felt like kind of a proverbial slap to the Pharisees. Where he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Go and learn what this means. That's the way, like as I'm reading it, it's just the way it felt. I'm just like, man. And I've come to realize that God is loving. Jesus is loving. He has love for the Pharisees because they're in the sinner's pool, even though they might think they're swimming in the righteous pool. So he tells them, go and learn what this means. Now, if your Bible is like mine, it might have a little notation next to this, like, this, this quotation, because Jesus is quoting Scripture. And it's Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. So when the Pharisees, you know, and the Pharisees, this thing, so you might be like, who are the Pharisees? Like, what's going on here? The Pharisees, they were a Jewish religious sect at, at the time. There was the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, if you were, you know, so they weren't necessarily, like, part of the Jewish council. Like, they weren't like the church leaders elect, but they were like, they're up there. And of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Pharisees themselves believed in the resurrection of the dead. Like they were like, in my opinion, like a step above even the Sadducees as far as what they believed. They believed in what was right, that the dead could be raised. Sadducees, no. So, but the Pharisees, so, you know, that's the thing, you picture in the story, the Israelite nation has not had a prophet in over like 400 years. And then John the Baptist comes and it's just like, wait, What? And he's the forerunner to Jesus that's preparing the way. And now here's Jesus. So they're just, they're, they're, they're just all over the place. They want to know. So now this, this prophet, this teacher, as they've said, has kind of given them this challenge. Go and learn what it means when it says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Chances are they could recall, they knew what passage he was quoting. They knew where where it was. Maybe they went back and they found the scroll. You know, they got the scroll and they said, well, you know, let's look at this, which is what I did because it's like, all right, well, God says, Jesus says, you know, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What is he talking about? So, you know, we look really quickly at Hosea chapter 6. I'm going to look at the whole thing really quick. We're going to read it. 
It's not too long. Because where the scroll, you know, if they read the whole scroll, if it was on multiple scrolls, I don't know. When they were reading it, but if they were looking into it, they might have read these words. Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. (laughs) After two days he will revive us. And on the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. That's interesting. Let us now, excuse me, let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. Know the Lord. He is going, his going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as light. For I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice, knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed when I restore the fortunes of my people. I desire steadfast love. I desire mercy. I desire kindness. I desire goodwill towards men. Not sacrifice. He compares it that he desires their steadfast love. He describes their love as like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. The grass is dry quickly. This is something that's kind of foreign to us in the Pacific Northwest. But I think that's kind of an example of what God wants our love to be like. Your love, it's here one second and it's gone the next. I want your love to be like the Pacific Northwest love, where the clouds come and they're here all day. It's all day long. And the rain's come and it showers down and the dew is covering your grass so much you can't mow your lawn for weeks because it's saturated, it's covered. That's what I want your love to be like. That's what I want your love to be like. And I desire this love that you have for God and people. You know, Jesus has asked, you know, what's the greatest commandment later in Matthew? And he's, this is an easy one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like and equal to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love people. Love them. Love them like the Pacific Northwest Northwest weather loves us. <laughs> a lot of you are like, I hate this weather. <laughs> Everyone wants sun and all that stuff. Yeah, whatever. When the sun comes out, the grass dies. <laughs> That's exactly right. Now, I was thinking about this with, I've been helping out in youth ministry. And right now, we've had some turnover in our youth ministry. Right now, I am the youth worker. There is no one else. There is no one else. And, you know, 
dare I be so bold as I say LifePoint Church, fellow members, congregation, is that we need laborers. In Matthew chapter 9, a little bit farther on, if we, if we were to jump ahead, 9.35, he's talking about it, and he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We have a lot of young people here at LifePoint Church. We have a lot of middle school age, high school age students. And right now, the laborer is me. And we need laborers. We need people's love set into action on our youth. I don't need your sacrifice. They don't need your sacrifice. They need your love. They desire that. God desires that. So if you would be so inclined or interested, I would love to talk to you after the service about how you could be involved in loving and serving our youth. I was thinking about it, getting kind of teary-eyed, like the people that had invested in my life. There's tons of them. I rattled off some names, and, and I actually, Joe, you're here for this service. There's a Joe Sloan that I knew growing up that was one of the men invested, and it wasn't you. I'm sorry. But I'm sure you've invested in other people's lives. You know, like I was thinking of the names of the people that I know that had invested in my life. There's tons of them. I can name them off. We had Cliff and John and Joe Sloan. <laughs> Man, that's just funny to me. Because I didn't even know it when I said it. First service. A bunch of people, Ken and Barbara Scholes, that had invested in my life, in my teenage years, in those developmental years where there's puberty and all that stuff. Like when you go, like, why would I want to work with youth? Like, why would I want to work with teenagers? It's fun. It's exciting. It's one of those things. I've described it to people that I've talked to. It's like getting to be a grandparent. I am not a grandparent, so I don't know exactly what being a grandparent is. But from what I've observed of grandparents is that they get to, like, enjoy time with their grandchildren, right? And they have fun. They love them, and it's exciting. But then at the end of the day, you get to send them back home to their parents. And they get to discipline them and do, like, all that stuff. It's the same thing working with youth. It's like you get to hang out with them, and you get the benefit of, like, we're going to hang out. We're going to have a relationship. We're going to love each other. But I do get to send you home to your parents at the end of the day, which is a wonderful thing. It is a wonderful thing. Do we love our youth? I was thinking about this. What if a... So, you know, because at first when I read it, it's like, man, this seemed pretty harsh from Jesus to the Pharisees, right? His disciples were listening. Everyone else was there too, but it seemed just like, ah. But Jesus loved them. I kind of wonder if Jesus had imagined, what would it look like if one of the Pharisees had taken this to heart and had found out what it meant to live a life of love and mercy and kindness. What would it look like? I think it looks an awful lot like Paul, who we just read a little bit about from Romans chapter 3. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees who came to understand these things. He came to understand these things and he did amazing things. He did amazing things. We're going to, technically in your bulletin it says that we're only covering 9, 9 through 13, but that's kind of a lie. I apologize. We're going to look a little bit at 14 and the, some other verses here as well because there's some imagery here that I just think is very important for us to capture. So these words aren't going to be up on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at 14 here. It says, and then the disciples of John, this is John the Baptist, right? He's got his followers. 
came to him saying, Jesus is reclining and feasting with sinners and tax collectors. Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Why are we refraining from eating in our piety, and your disciples are not refraining from eating? They are feasting. And Jesus said to them, Can wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. So both are preserved. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? I don't know about you guys, like, if you guys like weddings. I like weddings. Weddings are fun, especially when you're part of the wedding party, right? Like, that's exciting times. You know, your friends are getting married. You're hanging out together. You know, maybe you've traveled from afar to get to see them again and celebrate with them. And there's feasting and there's doing fun, crazy things. I got in trouble because... like, before I got married, me and all my buddies, we went out and saw a James Bond movie late at night. And my wife was upset because she's like, I thought we were going to go see that movie. So I got, like, in trouble before I even got married. But it was just like, that's what we know. It's like, we're hang- I'm hanging out with the guys. We're having a good time. How can they be mourning with me during this time? They're hanging out with me. We're having a good time. How can my disciples be mourning when they're hanging out with the bridegroom, Jesus says? And there's this imagery of a wedding feast that's all throughout Scripture. And Jesus is the bridegroom. He's the bridegroom. It says here, too, he kind of answers their question. You know, why aren't, why aren't they fasting? Essentially, he's telling them he's using this, this cloth analogy and the wineskins analogy. There's something new that's coming. There's a new covenant that God is going to make with his people that I need a new vessel to carry it forward. We have the old covenant, and I don't want it destroyed but we have the new covenant that's going to come and it's going to fulfill the old. And I have a new vessel that that's going to be. It's not going to be carried upon by the priests. It's not going to be carried forward by the religious officials. The vessel that I'm going to choose is essentially my church that's going to be full of tax collectors and accountants and custodians, youth workers, teachers, it's going to be carried forward by them. This analogy, <laughs> it's not an analogy. <laughs> this picture of the wedding feast that we get. In Matthew 22, the, he tells, Jesus tells a parable about a king that's throwing a feast for his son. And they send their invitations out and like no one comes. People make excuses and like, I'm busy. I have other things to do. And so the king just says, go out and invite everybody. Like off the streets, just invite everybody. Invite everybody to the feast. Invite everybody. Invite everybody to the feast. Um, Jesus in Matthew 26, you know, he's celebrating Passover for the last time with his disciples. And this is where, you know, like we get communion that we take and observe here every week at the end of the service. So he's, he's telling them of this, that when you drink of this cup now, when you drink all of you, for this is my blood 
for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And he says, I tell you, in verse 29, that I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I'm not going to drink of this again until we celebrate again at the feast my Father is throwing, that the King is throwing for his Son. He's introduced a new covenant. In Revelations 19, he talks about it too. It's referred to as the marriage supper of the Lamb. This big feast, big celebration. And you know what's really interesting about it is that all the sinners are invited. All of them. Every single one of them. He's invited you and I to a wedding feast. Just like he did Matthew. Matthew, he invited, he said, follow me. Matthew's response was to rise, was to get up. There's a major theme of rising in Matthew's gospel for some strange reason. And it's the same words as as he's referring to as Jesus rising from the dead. Matthew's response was to rise up. Just like God's called us from death to life. I want you to rise up. And I want you to follow me. And Matthew follows him. I I want you to be my companion. I want you to be my follower. I want you to be at my side. Not just for a little while. For all eternity. And one day, we will recline together at the table as friends. And enjoy each other's company and feast together. (laughs) The Pharisees, this drove them nuts. That Jesus would eat with tax collectors and sinners. But he's invited sinners to his table. He's invited each and every one of us because that's the boat that we all fall in. We fall into that boat. We've been invited to it. And he wants us to follow him. He wants us to love one another. He wants us to put our love into action. When Jesus tells, you know, his, his followers, he says, go and make disciples of all nations, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And Jesus isn't asking us to do anything he hasn't done himself. He calls his followers. He calls them. He loves them. And he wants their love to be like his, like the Pacific Northwest weather that rains like it's said in Hosea, that he sends his love on us like the spring rains, that we be saturated with it, that we love one another. One day we will recline in our Father's kingdom. Jesus invited himself over to Matthew's house. He's also invited us to his Father's kingdom. He's invited us to the feast that's there. And that to me is exciting, that we've been invited by God, the creator of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, has invited us to eat with him as friends in his house, in his kingdom. And that's one of those things where it just blows me away sometimes when I think about it, that he would do that for me, that he'd do that for each and every one of you, Even if you were the only person in the world, he would have done it just for you. Just for the one. 
Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your words. Thank you for the example that, that you were, that you are, and that what Matthew set for us. Father, I ask that, that we would be a people, that we would be a church, that we would be a congregation, that we would be your bride that has risen up, that are, are new creations, that know this, that live like this, that we've been made anew like you, made anew by you. And we follow you, Father, that we love like you did. You, you desire love, steadfast love, mercy, kindness, not sacrifice. You want us to, to live that. We want us to know you. Father, I just ask you to help us to, to do that because that's tough. <laughs> Loving people is hard. People do things that drive us nuts. People do things that just we don't understand. They do things that hurt us. We do things that hurt others. Father, help us to be people that love. Father, we thank you for we thank you for the invitation that you've given us to recline with us at the table as friends. Father, that's your invitation. We celebrate communion. We celebrate what you did on the cross, that, that you died for our sins, that you paid that penalty, that we can have relationship with you. And Father, you did that while we were still sinners. You died for us. You've invited all the sinners to your table as friends. And Father, we thank you for that. We worship you for that. And Father, I ask that you help us to live lives transformed by that. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.